from the same station that invented radio with subtitles. This is the elixir of eternal youth, a worldly story told by a group of travellers, a history of Brisbane, Australia and the world. This is Radio in Colour. A special documentary series to celebrate four decades of Brisbane's oldest youth radio station. for part of our first broadcast. You're listening to 4ZZ FM in Brisbane, bringing you stereo FM rock on a frequency of 105.7 megahertz. 4ZZ FM is Brisbane's first new radio station in over 30 years, first ever stereo FM station. 4ZZ FM is not only Queensland's first stereo FM station, it is also a public broadcasting station, non-commercial and non-ABC. We finally received our licence last week, signed by the Postmaster General, Mr Peter Nixon. And while we're waiting, with the time at three and a quarter minutes past twelve, let's get down to some serious business from Who's Next? This is The Who. Won't get fooled again. You just heard the first minute from the first broadcast of Radio 4 Z, giving voice to young community announcer John Wood on the 8th December 1975, 40 years ago. The song that he played towards the end of the clip is Won't Get Fooled Again by The Who. Our first episode today will explore Australia and its society after the Second World War. We will look at the beginning of community radio in Australia, what music was like in the 1970s when the community radio began and our featured interview is... 40 years in 40 images, where four people each discuss a series of images that for them sums up the last four decades. Fear of the domino effect of communism in Asia shaped Australia's foreign policy in the decades after the end of World War II. In 1948, the Communist International had decided to encourage revolution in Asia as well as Europe, Latin America and elsewhere by supporting the local communist parties that already existed in most Asian and third world countries. These local groups drew extra confidence and strength from the support of the Soviet superpower. In retrospect, it became clear this support was mostly in words rather than deeds. During the Cold War that began in 1945, leaders in the capitalist West feared communism would spread by brushfire wars, local guerrilla insurgencies aided by weapons and coordinated support from communist countries. According to this theory, communist takeover in one country would powerfully assist insurgency in a neighbour with both weapons and morale. Both sides believed heightened nationalism and a hostile reaction against European colonialism would combine with the poverty of Asian countries to make fertile ground for communism. It was in this context the Menzies government committed Australian advisory troops to South Vietnam in 1962 to support the newly independent government that was resisting the communist insurgency directed from the north and aimed to take over all of the Indochinese region. But by 1965, the South Vietnamese government started looking shakier. This prompted American President Lyndon B. Johnson to announce American troops would fight in Vietnam directly to prevent the advance of communism in Asia. Just one year later, Australian Prime Minister Harold Holt visited Washington and announced Australians would be all the way with LBJ.
In October 1966, a grateful President Johnson visited Australia, the first sitting American president to do so. What might normally have been a celebratory visit, like a royal tour, turned out to be very different. In September, Holt announced Canberra would triple its troop commitment to Vietnam to 4,500, including 1,500 National Service conscripts. This decision proved deadly and wildly unpopular. Inspired by the anti-Vietnam demonstrations in the US, crowds of up to 10,000 mostly young people gathered in Sydney, Melbourne and Canberra to say no to war and chant LBJ, LBJ, how many kids did you kill today? As the war progressed from bad to worse and youth protests grew, an estimated 1.2 million Vietnamese people died, and the US lost some 50,000 lives. 500 Australians died in combat, but the war wasn't perceived as a mainstream political issue. It would be almost another decade before the US conceded defeat in Vietnam, and Australian troops were brought home in 1975, one of the election promises of the Whitlam government. With the end of the war and conscription, the youthquake that drove the Vietnam marches and drugs, sex and rock and roll receded from public sight at the same time as its legacy permeated society. It was felt very keenly in education, especially among young teachers and humanities academics. Strong language and depiction of sex on radio, stage and screen became almost normal, in a way that would have been unwanted and almost unthinkable just a few years before. many people at the time, the three years of the Whitlam government were stylish, exciting, sometimes exhilarating in its ambition and vision. Its accomplishments included universal health insurance through Medibank, later called Medicare, no-fault divorce after 12 months of separation, pensions for single mothers and free university tuition. The Whitlam government also passed the Racial Discrimination Act of 1975 and granted independence to Papua New Guinea, which had until then been considered part of Australia. What you'll hear next is an excerpt from the eulogy given by Noel Pearson at Gough Whitlam's funeral in 2015. My signal honour today, on behalf of more people than I could ever know, is to express our immense gratitude for the public service of this old man. In 1985, Bajilki Peterson sought to kill the Murray Islanders case by enacting a retrospective extinguishment of any such title. There was no political or media uproar against Bajilki Peterson's law. There was no public condemnation of the state's manoeuvre. There was no redress anywhere in the democratic forums or procedures of the state or the nation. If there were no Racial Discrimination Act, that would have been the end of it. Land rights would have been dead. There would never have been a Mabo case in 1992. There would have been no Native Title Act under Prime Minister Keating in 1993. Without this old man, the land and human rights of our people would never have seen the light of day. Only those who have never experienced prejudice can discount the importance of the Racial Discrimination Act. Its critics faulted it for governing too much 
too quickly, spending too much, wanting to change too much, and having too many grand plans. And so the dismissal came to pass. The Governor General has dismissed Mr. Whitlam as Prime Minister and appointed Mr. Fraser to head a caretaker government to hold a general election for both Houses of Parliament. Earlier, in a statement after his dismissal of Mr. Whitlam, Sir John Kerr said it had been necessary for him to find a democratic and constitutional solution for the crisis. He said the only solution consistent with the Constitution and with his oath of office was to terminate the commission of Mr. Whitlam as Prime Minister and to arrange for a caretaker government able to secure supply and willing to let the issue go to the people. Because of the principles of responsible government, a Prime Minister who could not obtain supply must either advise a general election or resign. Sir John Kerr said that if a Prime Minister refused to resign or to advise an election, and this was the case of Mr Whitlam, then he had no alternative but to withdraw his commission and invite the leader of the opposition, Mr Fraser, to form a caretaker government. It was now for the people to decide the issue which the two leaders had failed. I, Sir John Robert Kerr, the Governor-General of Australia, do by this my proclamation dissolve the Senate and the House of Representatives given under my hand on the Great Seal of Australia on the 11th of November 1975 by His Excellency's Command, Malcolm Fraser, Prime Minister, John R. Kerr, Governor-General. God save the Queen. Ladies and gentlemen, well may we say God save the Queen, because nothing will save the Governor-General. Well may we say God save the Queen, because nothing will save the Governor-General. Well may we say, God save the Queen. Because nothing will save the Governor-General. Sir John Kerr's done a completely unprincipled act. Sir John Kerr's done a completely unprincipled act. He said to me three weeks ago and I was sworn in, Mr Keating, we'll be relying on your advice and the advice of your fellow members of the Executive Council. He's not sought our advice. The point that needs to be considered here is that half of the Australian people are denied access to legitimate political power. Now we've won 49% of the vote, 49.5 in 72 and the 1970s was a truly transitional decade. Economically, new natural resources projects started bringing in new trade profits to the country, but more slowly than the optimists had expected, and it was dented by the double-digit inflation and unemployment that kicked in after 1974. Jermaine Greer is perhaps one of the best-known young writers and intellectuals who helped counter some of the more conservative aspects of Australian society. The female eunuch published in 1970, and other books of that time brought to general readers radical feminist ideas that had been developing for some years. For better or worse, family life would never be the same again.
Australia, the lucky country, victorious in war and prosperous in peace. A relaxed place, conservative yet growing fast. The baby boom happened from 1945 until about 1960 and a whole new generation was raised with a better standard of living, especially their education, which was higher than what their parents had experienced. By 1975, when 4 Z commenced broadcasting, things had changed. The cold war between communist nations like the Soviet Union and Western Alliance, particularly the USA, led to the divisive Vietnam War from the mid-1960s, the growth of what is called the counterculture, and the sexual revolution all changed the face of Australia. This story will feature a special archival audio from 4 Z. We don't expect Triple Z to make it into the history books, so this is our own incomplete account of the first 10 years. Who knows what the future holds? Certainly no one at Triple Z, but when it gets here, you'll hear about it first on 4 Triple Z FM. They said it couldn't be done. They did everything they could to stop it. But Triple Z is still here. You're listening to 4 Triple Z. For 10 years, 4 Triple Z FM has provided Brisbane with an extra photon of electromagnetic radiation. After 100,000 songs and 50,000 community notices, what can you say about 4 Triple Z? It has been the soundtrack for life on the edge in the Sunshine State. It has won a lot of awards while operating on a shoestring budget, paying lousy wages to its burnt-out staff. It wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the volunteers. It has presented news that are unobscured by the myth of objectivity. It has got under the skin of the smallest-minded Conservative government in Australia and stayed there, despite their best efforts to destroy it. Triple Z is your station. For Triple Z. We want to appeal to your senses. The beginnings of community radio in Australia. What you're about to hear is an excerpt from the first recording of then Radio 4 Z, which was broadcast on the 8th of December of 1975. In last Friday's financial review, the caretaker Prime Minister, Malcolm Fraser, was quoted as saying that he would like to see stations such as 2 J and the ethnic stations encouraged. Then, on Friday night, the Attorney-General, Ivor Greenwood, said that if the caretaker government attained legitimate power on December the 13th, the new radio licences would have to be looked into very closely as he seriously doubted their legality. We consider that it is time for the coalition parties to accept the Labor government's achievements as a fact of life and for them to formulate a coherent policy with regard to broadcasting. 4ZZZ, which was then called 4ZZZ, started broadcasting from the University of Queensland at St Lucia campus on the 8th of December of 1975. For a few days in the 1980s, it broadcast from the roof of a car close to the transmitters of Mount Kutha and in the early 1990s, it learned to call the Fortitude Valley home. 4ZZZ FM is not only Queensland's first stereo FM station, it is also a public broadcasting station, non-commercial and non-ABC. Radio has been in Australia since the 1920s, but until the 1970s, all radio stations were either commercial organisations or they were run by the government. 
In the 1960s, Australia's social, political and cultural landscape began to change and people wanted the Australian media, in turn, to reflect these changes. Until then, programming on Australian radios imitated the models of the BBC or American radio. Many specialist groups, including ethnic and indigenous communities, political activists, students, academics and lovers of classical music, began to lobby for their own radio broadcasting licenses. And they got what they wanted. Australia's first community radio station was Radio Adelaide, with call sign 5UV, licensed in 1972, with many more to come in the following years. One of these stations was Double J, now national radio station Triple J, and we'll hear music historian Liz Jufre explaining why the launch was such a seminal moment for the youth of Australia. Featured in this talk is a recently unearthed interview run on Double J in 1975 with the then Prime Minister, Gough Whitlam. As a 34-year-old Australian media scholar and practitioner, it has never quite occurred to me that young people would not have a place in our media or the right to ask questions of those in power. As well, a place to represent ourselves with our own music, comedy, talk and other forms of artistry. I literally know no different. But at the time of this interview and of the launch of Double J in January 1975, these really were new ideas. Many media scholars, commentators and audiences have praised the persistence and evolution of, of radio, a medium that should have been killed by subsequent new technologies like TV, online and social media, but continues to be popular and influential. Its immediacy and intimacy is what allows this to happen, as well as flexibility of access. Radio can be taken with us in cars, on public transport, or hidden under a pillow to be listened to late into the night. It's also cheap to access and maintain, something that makes it particularly accessible for young people. I don't know about you, but getting my first radio that was just mine to listen to what I wanted to listen to was a key part of me gaining my independence. It seems that all involved in Double J in 1975 were aware of radio's power as a form of communication. Mr Whitlam, could I tempt you back um, for a moment? You mentioned schools and, and so on, and uh, again, our audience is, is often largely a very young one. And how realistically can... I mean. Wealthy graziers and prime ministers, they're, they're minority sort of groups, really. That's right. Because people don't have those sort of jobs. And how realistically... Oh, well, the appointed ones, both. Can um, a generation that the uh, politicians and parliamentarians are honestly represent with some sort of understanding and compassion a generation who would quite often lately probably think that laws are being made just purely and simply against their existence and sort of lifestyle, which is obviously very different to that of the lifestyle of the generation who's the ruling power. Well, I, I suppose you're asking me these things, expect me to be a bit subjective. Uh, I've been uh, saved uh, to a certain extent by having uh, uh, children, uh, uh, you know, in their teens or their twenties uh, during this period. And uh, so I do at least have that contact with uh, uh, the, uh, the age groups to which you mentioned. I, I do believe that the public is alert to the difference between the parties. We have spent a very great deal of money on new programs, education, health, welfare and urban programs. Now, this costs money, it takes taxpayers' money, but at least these programs are for the benefit of everybody. Not to mention two double J. Not exactly, exactly. Although two double, day, two double J actually is a very economic investment. It's run on a shoestring. Nothing changes. You've been listening to highlights of Happy Birthday, Triple J, 40 Years of Big Sound and Big Impact, which was co-presented on 19th of January of 2015 by the Centre for Media History at Macquarie University and the Whitlam Institute within the University of Western Sydney. Any day now you will receive this envelope. It's vitally important that you read what is inside. Because inside is your Medicare enrolment form and a brochure explaining how Medicare will provide every permanent resident with basic health insurance. Let every Australian, from newborn babe to Prime Minister, 
can share in the cheapest, simplest and fairest health insurance scheme Australia's ever had. Medicare. The story of broadcasting in foreign languages in Australia goes something like this. In 1975, as the new Medibank healthcare scheme, which was later renamed Medicare in 1984, was rolled out across Australia, there were concerns that minority communities might require details in their own languages about Medicare and how it worked. That's where the idea of ethnic radio stations came from. Stations 2EA in Sydney and 3EA in Melbourne started broadcasting pre-recorded messages in seven and eight foreign languages as early as June of 1975. Three years later, by 1978, the SBS broadcasted 126 hours weekly in 36 languages. Today, SBS radio broadcasts in 74 languages across Australia, with the most recent additions to the grid being Malayam, Dinka, Hmong, Pashto, Swahili and Tigrinya, which is one of the languages of Ethiopia and Eritrea. This is 4EB FM. Hello, beautiful Brisbane. Bonjour. Hello. Buongiorno. Kakoste. Kriyatsi mitenam. Shiva, baiva. Vanakkam. Dien dobre. Hola, amigos. Hey. Huida. Dobri den. Pimimas yasas. G'day. Hona potkivan. Ni homa. Hello, lele. Guten tag. Lama diena. Dobri den. Radio 4EB. Sharing the world with you. Close at home, there's been a lot of talk on air and off since ethnic station 4EB started broadcasting from a Greek bakery in West End. That was not the formal beginning of the radio, but the first studio was hardly bigger than a kitchen cupboard. And yet it didn't put off broadcasters from getting on air in 20 different languages. Broadcasting took place after 4pm and before 11am, with the rest of the time spent training panel operators to keep up with the demand for on-air programming. Forty years later, there are more than 360 community radio licences and over 80 community television licences around Australia. Community radio stations operate in towns and cities across the country. Stations serve the many needs and interests of local geographic communities and or special communities of interest. Community media is different from commercial media because it promotes access and participation in the process of media operations, administration and production. According to the Community Broadcasting Fund, there are now close to 20,000 volunteer broadcasters and support staff helping to deliver media for the people, by the people, across Australia. With the time at three and a quarter minutes past twelve, let's get down to some serious business from who's next. This is the who won't get fooled again.
pictures on the radio. It doesn't ruin your vision like a TV show. Practice yoga on the ground or get up and walk around. You can do it when you're listening to the radio. You can shave or wash your hair while our show is on the air. You can cook up a fondue and we'd still be coming through. You can stay in bed and you'll find we don't care at all. Just as long as you keep listening to the radio. So tell them what you look like on the radio. Cause if they never see you, then they'll never know. Doesn't matter if you act me, cause they'll never know exactly what you look like when they listen to the radio. Four triple Z. You've been listening to Radio in Colour, a special documentary series to celebrate 40 years of Radio 4 Triple Z. In our next story, we have asked four people to choose images that represent the changing society and politics of Brisbane, of Queensland and of Australia. The story is titled 40 Years in 10 Images. We chose our speakers deliberately, so we would have two volunteers, one musician and one person who stands in as a member for the audience. For the musicians team, we had Tony Knipe, who was the lead singer of The Parameters, the band that made the single that perhaps best represents the 70s in Queensland, which is Big City. You'll also hear from Andrew Bartlett and Heather Anderson, who have both been volunteers for a very long time for 4 Z and who both now serve in the board of the station. And from Dr. Dave Eden, who is a subscriber with 4ZZZ and an occasional guest in some of our programs. It is a somewhat um, whimsical and eclectic group of things that I've picked. Tony Knight. Sound of rubber band rolling off uh, a couple of posters here, but I thought we'll start with this. This is Drew Hutton. At the time of the uh, Commonwealth Games, the Queen Street Mall was completed shortly before it, and they passed a whole lot of new laws, basically not allowing people to um, do public speaking in the mall and so on. And, and Drew locked himself to a tree as part of a campaign for free speech in the mall. So it's t- sometime, possibly a bit after the Commonwealth Games, probably about 1983. But uh, anyway, that's a, a photo of Drew Hutton um, with a solid looking chain and we can see the padlock around his waist with a bit of paper in his hand and uh, spreaking to the assembled crowd this is a photo that's a photo i've taken myself and kind of thing that uh, went on a lot over the years uh, radio was a, a fabulous thing for brisbane with four triple z it gave a voice to a lot of people but one of the things we need to remember is the history that that um, four triple z sort of came out of an activist movement involved um, particularly with the anti-war movement associated with the University of Queensland. We need to remember that at that stage in the beginning of the 70s, at the time Triple Z started, 75, Griffith would have just been coming into being. Uh, QUT would have been QIT, the uh, Queensland Institute of Technology, so it was an institute of higher learning, but it wasn't a university. So the University of Queensland was at that time the only university in Queensland. As as I was saying, the, the, the four triple Z sort of came out of a, an, an activist movement, uh, which was particularly associated with the anti-war movement, the uh, opposition to the war in Vietnam, uh, um, which sort of came to a peak in 1970-71 with the moratorium movement. And in 1971, we saw the uh, episode with the, the Springboks, um, and um, that led to a sort of a continuing anti-racist movement, which had strong associations with the anti-war movement as, as well through the... Um, 70s we had huge demonstrations uh, over the right to march which became a huge issue joe must go of course was chanted endlessly but yes uh, 2468 demand the right to demonstrate would have been certainly chanted an awful lot at those demonstrations and huge numbers of people were arrested at those demos they set records of course there were more than 400 arrested at the uh, one where the most arrests are and a number of others where over 200 people got arrested that sort of went on for two or three years till it all eventually petered out. What we see Drew doing here is part of a continuation of that whole activist tradition where people would go out, actually do public speaking in public places in the city, in King George Square, in the mall, and um, distribute leaflets in a very public way. Uh, People used to do an awful lot of handing out leaflets in the old days. Um, It was part and parcel of the whole activist thing. Uh, 
Joe Bill Peterson with a double barrel shotgun and the Joe for PM sticker above it. That's the 1987 federal election. Andrew Bartlett. Again, a sign of just how delusional and, and crazed the whole situation got. They, they got a majority in their own right in the federal parliament because the Liberals fell a bit to some extent uh, and because of the electoral system. So they just became all, all powerful, I guess. And because Queensland doesn't have an upper house, then the government can just do what it likes. And uh, it really became, when you mentioned the word dictator, I mean, he was still voted in, even if the electoral system was dodgy. But it was very much that, that feel about, you know, this untouchable you know, king at the top of it all. And a, a group of people, again, developers and business people looking for big bucks for themselves, uh, convinced themselves somehow that, you know, somehow they could become prime minister, which just lunacy but you know that just shows the lunacy of the times that, that a lot of people somehow thought it was a viable prospect so and I guess the photo of him with his shotgun um, a bit of the wild west feel to the whole place at the time and you know the sheriff running people out of town you know don't want your types around here all that sort of stuff um, sort of fairly symbolic for me. You know, as, as the police became more politicised and more corrupt, um, there were more and more targeting, uh, certainly in terms of people of Triple Z engaged with and the, the youth uh, at the time, and particularly politically active people. Um, they were directly targeted by the police, had their houses raided, uh, all of these sorts of things. Um, you know, I mentioned the police, you know, stand turning up in large numbers to particularly punk gigs but but any sort of you know independent gigs of young people around uh, just you know grabbing them all off the streets all the time uh, you know appalling mistreatment of Aboriginal Queenslanders in particular photograph here of Boundary Street in, in West End and I think that would have been about 1979, it's hard to remember it precisely and, but certainly West End uh, was the scene of uh, not only a very um, rich ethnic community and I have heard that there were kids from more than 50 different backgrounds at primary school there at one stage certainly a, a very large Greek presence uh, and uh, at different stages a lot of Vietnamese and various other groups as well but it was also uh, sort of a the um, headquarters central for a lot of the sort of alternative bohemian um, lefty um, and sort of alternative music etc etc set in Brisbane uh, these things change over time I think it's sort of a lot more difficult to find any real um, hub to that sort of thing these days but certainly in years gone past uh, West End and New Farm were very much the heart of, of that sort of thing and, and to some extent probably still are but West End has changed but there we have it Boundary Street in West End it's just just to remember how things were the guy we see right in the front on that uh, photo you can't actually see his shop but he was he was a greengrocer there on the corner was it uh, that's right on the corner of uh, Vulture Street looking down Boundary Street is where we are there in that photo but yes certainly the continental delicatessen is uh, indicative of the sort of shops that were there in those days <laughs> So this is a photo of um, a guy called Tony Fitzgerald uh, on the left-hand side of the photo, handing over his report to a guy called Mike Hearn, who was Premier of Queensland, only for a brief time, actually. And this was an inquiry into corruption, was police corruption in particular, even though it was a report commissioned by the then National Party regime, whilst the Premier happened to be away, actually say they would implement all of the recommendations, but uh, the, the Fitzgerald inquiry and Tony Fitzgerald's the the guy that's handing over the report exposed so much corruption and uh, the you know, totally entrenched nature of it, the blaséness of it, uh, that really was the thing that finally led to the um, the end of the National Party government and they'd been in power for a very long time. You know, some of the things Bjorki Peterson did, including cracking down on political dissent, uh, was popular with a lot of Queenslanders because they're very conservative. So despite the electoral system being... Uh, dodgy, uh, you know, there were significant levels of public support, which from Charles Z context was what we were very much in the thick of battling against in the 1980s, um, with very strong sort of political campaigning out of Triple Z at that time. It's a Fitzgerald inquiry and the Fitzgerald report are significant in their own right, but also I think 
really symbolised the last straw, if you like, mm. or the beginning of the end for, um, for the National Party government. Heather Anderson. So this photo was taken in November 1993 after the death in police custody of Daniel Yock, who was a, a young Aboriginal guy from Sherberg, and there had been the um, Deaths in Custody Royal Commission and there had been all this attention on it and basically there was this major frustration that people were still being killed by police and the police had been found to be um, not responsible by the autopsy. So this rally, and there were thousands of people in this rally, and it was led by the Indigenous communities of Brisbane and then everyone else followed on from that, and it was a silent rally. So it was just so powerful. I ran up. So this is going underneath the bridge that is now the busway at the Cultural Centre. So um, I ran ahead and, and ran up on the bridge to take this photo and there were thousands of people and we walked from Musgrave Park, I'm guessing, to the Watch House in Brisbane where there was a bit of a ceremony and then walked back again and um, the whole time except for the ceremony um, was in silence and that in itself was really powerful. And you can see in the photo that a lot of people are wearing the same T-shirt. It's a black T-shirt that's got gold print on it. And um, I'm not – I can't remember the exact words that were on the shirt, but it said something. It had his name, like Booney, our brother, and then the um, is it justice or just us was written on that shirt. And there were so many of those shirts so this was 1993 and it was just a really powerful time where um, there was a real, in South Brisbane, there was just a real tension in the air and you could just feel that people had had a gutful of the way that the um, the traditional owners of that land were being treated by the police and, and this was just such a powerful silent march to, um, to recognise uh, Daniel's death. Two for the powerful and rich room, one for us here the poor. I can't afford no $2,000 a day lawyer to defend me from their oppressive laws. That's why I got these hobbity towns. Beaten on down, arrested for just hanging around. These are elite society Dave Eden. This image that I have is a still from the movie Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. So it's a classic image of one of the main characters in incredibly elaborate silver drag on top of the bus in the middle of the Australian desert. This is not only a great image of what Australian film was effectively about for about 30 years, which was about the landscape, but I've chosen this because I think it is emblematic of both a changing and a lost Australia. The Australia of the 90s. In the 90s there was a very different develop, cultural development of a kind of socially progressive notion of Australia. And then lots of problems, you know, this was under the Hawke then Keating years, lots of problems in many ways, but on questions of gender and sexuality and uh, national identity and place in the world, it was radically different than what came after after the Howard election, and you can think about how that how you will. So I like this as a kind of a still of the progressive Australia in the 90s. This is from the Reclaim the Night rally that happened back then, and I'm you know I'm fairly sure still happens now where women rally yeah, against rape and sexual assault. So the All Bodies in Beautiful, that's me. So we were we were a part of the Reclaim the Night collective this year and a lot of us decided that we were going to march topless and totally reclaim the night and, and be safe. And, yeah, so we did. And we had um, this uh, woman, Vicky, who was in a band called Zurastia. She was an amazing artist and she painted a lot of us up. There were a lot of women with paint and they, they painted us all up so we weren't just nude and we had people had daisies 
painted on their boobs and all other types of business. And um, yeah, we marched through the streets of Brisbane topless and yelled and screamed and banged stuff and, and demanded the right to be able to walk the streets at night safe. And um, and I think that, that that's a really important part of Brisbane history is that there have always been women who have fought for their rights and for the rights of, of humanity more broadly, but especially for the rights of women to be safe. And I was presenting Megahertz every Sunday on 4ZZZ. Standing next to me is my friend Kirsten. And um, she also, she did Megahertz with me as well. So that was um, 4ZZZ's women's, um, women's program that, that started in the 70s as Through the Looking Glass and is still on air today. Organisations like the Brisbane Rape Crisis Centre and Women's House that have been going for such a long time and doing such great work, I think that their stories tend to, to be forgotten in histories of Brisbane, so I just wanted to bring them to the forefront by using this picture. This image, very famous image, it's a, a photo of the Opera House in Sydney that has no war spray painted across one of its sails with a Sydney ferry uh, in front of it. Now this individual act of civil disobedience slash graffiti, depending on how you define it, happened in the context of possibly the largest protest movement that Australia has ever seen in terms of numbers of people on the street. So hundreds of thousands of people were involved in protesting against what was then about to become the Iraq war. I think it's really important because in my mind, this was a movement that was defeated. Hundreds of thousands of people mobilized in a way people had never had before, opposing the uh, Iraq war, and the state still sent the soldiers in. And I think it had a generational impact on the political psychology in Australia. And this is the second Iraq war? The second one, so this is 2003, not, not 1991. Uh, I think it had a, a, gener like a generational impact that kind of said to people that you can't change anything. And I think a lot of attempts to build um, protest movements or social movements, whatever terminology you want to use, have to wrestle with this experience. But I also think it's an incredibly iconic image as well. Also, the thing that it brings to my mind is in the 80s and 90s, people used to do this kind of political graffiti everywhere, right? It was quite common for environmental organisations to drop banners off buildings and things like that. I think in the increasingly security-concerned war on terror age, this has disappeared. And so that's interesting that this kind of public act of defiance has been kind of securitised away. photo of the barrier reef really key part of any um, personification or image of, of Queensland but it was only you know over that we're talking about 40 years and 40 years ago it was under threat um, from oil exploration and drilling um, it took a lot of community action to get it declared as a marine park that protected it again it was the Liberal or the National Party country party that was keen to open it up to drilling uh, so over that period of time, it's now been protected from drilling and the like, but it's still under threat from, uh, again, climate change and, again, from not just Liberal National Party, but um, Labor Party governments that seem keen on getting coal dug up as much as possible and uh, exacerbating the climate change threat. Uh, and the reefs uh, at danger, at risk because of that, uh, as well as other things. You're an ordinary boy, and that's the way I like you. On a train in the corner with a mind numbing headache. Well, up last night with only one night, had to let you know that you're beautiful and you make me go. Even if you're taking bets, no moves on.
Last but not least. So this picture is from 4ZZZ's 2015 Radiothon, which is happening as I speak. And the reason why I've chosen this image is to remind everyone that history is an ongoing um, event and that as much as it's fun to look back to things that happened 40 years ago, we're constantly creating history and that what we're doing now today in 2015 will be history at some point in the future and I think it's really important to recognise the achievements and and the um, the great stuff that's going on all the time rather than just looking to the past and sort of romanticising the um yeah what what's what's been and um and in this image you can see the banana the four triple z banana which has been the mascot almost since the beginning of triple z's history but not quite and um so now the banana is um is 40 years old he's suffering a midlife crisis he's become a he as well which is sort of interesting because I think that Banana Man has been Banana Man and I I know that there are women who have dressed up in the banana suit but I haven't seen very many images of a female version. But this particular banana is Jeff, our listener Jeff, and um, he's having a midlife crisis and he's, he's driving the topless car and he's got his cute little young iPhone girlfriend and he's off to achieve his bucket list and looking to the future, which I think is, is, um, is just as important as looking to our past. You're in ordinary boy and that's the way I like you on a train in the corner with a mind numbing headache. You're tuned into Radio in Colour, a special documentary series to celebrate the 40th anniversary of Radio 4 Triple Z. We acknowledge the generous support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation, without whom this project would not be possible. Our special thanks to our guests today, Andrew Bartlett. Heather Anderson, Tonic Knight, Dave Eden and Peter Roweda, who lent his voice to some old 4ZZZ scripts. You also heard the voice of former Australian Prime Minister Gough Whitlam in an interview aired in Triple J in 1975 and later in Waltzing Mode, as mixed by Brisbane's own experimental music ensemble, Topology. This show has been recorded at The Edge Studios within the State Library of Queensland, as well as radios 4EB and 4ZZZ. This show was produced by me, Carolina Caliava, and Stephen Rigol. Nia the Poibis are sun engineer, and Blair Martin and Kim Stewart are trainers. In the next episode of this special documentary series to celebrate for the years of 4ZZZ, we go into the profound and often hairy wall of protest songs from New York City to Tehran. You have been listening to 4ZZZ. My name is Chiki Fufu. That's all for episode one. And happy 40th birthday, Triple Z. Well, they control the police, the prisons, and the armies. They protect their greedy hides. Well, they control the police, the prisons, and the armies. They protect their greedy hides. But as the Fitzgerald Inquiry has discovered, they're all real criminals that are living high out there upon the outside. That's why I got these poverty towns beating on down, arrested for just hanging around. These elite society bargaining jail blues. Well, I see a light down. Says stand up for what's right. Well, I see this brilliant prima light. Says stand up for your rights. And it shines through the valley of freedom into this old Bagaro jail night. That's why I got these poverty towns beating on now.